the hour, we do have a very special guest that we're going to introduce. Um, he is the executive executive director of our revolution, Joseph G. Varghese, and he has been a longtime labor activist uh, for folks that don't know that. So he's had a whole labor rights activism life outside of our revolution. So let's go ahead and bring Joseph on. Hey, hey, Tina. Welcome, hey, Joseph. Ron. So Hey, so glad we could there. have you today. We have lots to talk about, lots Thank going you. on. There's some wins, some losses, some frustrations. But right off the top, I want to talk to you about the railroad strike. Uh, you know, obviously Biden stepped in and he he thwarted the strikers from going on strike, uh, kind of forced that deal. One of the main selling points, um, or one of the bad points, I should say, is the, the sick days are not part of the deal. And Bernie Sanders is now asking for Biden to sign an executive order, more or less, to uh, sign that into law, that they get there at, at minimum seven, six days. And seven's not enough. They should have more. I do want to ask you, though, because you've dealt yeah. with Biden in the past. When Obama was president and you were ahead of a labor uh, movement, you had him as your point person, as VP. And I think... Um, back then you learned you had to like make him do things right this was obama was supposed to be this progressive guy that was pro-labor and he still wasn't you know doing the things necessary to bring the labor uh, labor rights forward so making him do it right activism from the outside so now you're now we're going to be going toe to toe with him to try to try to see if he'll sign this executive order what do you think the outcome is going to be you know look i think the the most significant takeaway from this strike is there's still a fundamental question about which side is the Democratic Party on. Is it on the side of workers and organized labor, or is it on the side of big corporations? And time and time again, we've seen Democratic administrations uh, pick the wrong side. And this is just another example. Uh, you know, uh, and in some ways, I would argue that this could have been uh, a PATCO in reverse moment for Joe Biden. Uh, you know, we had one of the uh, key moments in labor history that really signaled, I think, the beginning of the demise of the American labor movement in this era was when Reagan said, I am not going to stand on the side of striking air traffic controllers. I'm going to yeah. use my authority as president to bust the union. And in some ways, the president, while he didn't bust the union, he did uh, use his power to say, you know what, I'm not gonna make you, the workers, more powerful at the bargaining table. Um, right. And the truth is the workers had power, right? I mean, they could paralyze the entire economy if they wanted to. Um, and that's something that I think is significant, uh, uh, is that workers were positioned. They had muscle, but the president said, no, I'm not with you. Yeah. Um, and I think that has, you know, in a larger context, if uh, in the larger political context, if we're going to rebuild progressive politics in this country, I think it's imperative for us to have a strong labor movement. And most importantly, it's important to have a government that stands on the side of workers, because that's uh, that's what we elect people like Joe Biden to do. Um, and, you know, in this case, it was really disappointing. 
do we support Bernie, uh, others pushing on the executive action, you know, in terms of getting sick days? Of course. Uh, but more generally, I think it is, it should be some, there should be some soul searching on the part of unions, on the part of progressives about what we've got to do to make democratic politicians uh, embrace labor much more than just rhetorically. Right. No, you know, that's exactly right. They could have leaned on the employers to force them to provide the sick days instead of leaning on the workers to say you can't strike because you're going to shut down the economy. Let's be clear, that was a choice that they made. They do have the power to lean on the other side, but you're right. They didn't, Reagan do, didn't do it, Biden didn't do it. And both of these were, you know, broad transportation strikes that did threaten the well-being of the economy. But on the same token, I don't see that that strike would go longer than a couple of days because the money these uh, uh, large companies would lose would be substantial. And it wouldn't just be the railroad companies, right? So, and that's the point of having power, yes. right? And that, that is, is why exactly, you that's right, that's right. I mean, there, there are low wage workers. And in this case, uh, you know, it's not necessarily the railway workers. They've been organized. They have some collective bargaining power that's given them some decent wages and benefits. They still yeah. deserve sick days. They still uh, deserve a say in their working conditions. But there's whole swaths of this modern logistics uh, or si supply chain economy yeah. uh, that uh, are uh, you know workers that are living in poverty, scraping by, yeah. working in nodes of the supply chain, working in warehouses. Uh, Workers who have incredible power, but they're not able to organize for what, whatever reason. They're counted as independent contractors. They're not covered by labor law. And it's still segments of the economy the president or the government could do something about. Uh, but I think, you know, maybe they want to keep uh, these critical workers uh, unempowered. You know, That's maybe right. there's something to that. And we should think about that. Yeah, I mean, they're afraid that they might actually wake up and feel their power and then not stop asking for things that they deserve. Uh, you know, labor has been beaten down for so many decades now that the just the defeatist um, attitude we've been feeling has been just, you know, a long time sitting there. But now I think it's changing. I think that there is an increase in labor power. Uh, more companies are losing their gambits to unions forming. We see that with Amazon. We see it with Starbucks. We see it with others. So I think there is a shift and change in the way people are viewing that, which is which is good. It's a necessary component to affecting uh, real change in the country. Uh, I want to also mention, you know, Mansion's dirty deal. That was a win. Uh, you know, that is a zombie bill though that keeps coming back. I think that Biden had promised him another turn at that bill. You know, that would give him the pipeline. Uh, when he agreed to the Inflation Reduction Act, right? So there was a trade-off that was made. Um, so we stopped it last week, but I don't think that it's over. I think it might come back again. What it, What is your take on uh, Manchin's Dirty Deal? Well, it is going to, uh, you know, from what I understand from talking to our allies on the Hill, the other side is trying to push a vote. They're trying to get uh, the NDAA uh, amended to include this. And look, let's be Even real. now? Even now, they haven't given up, right? And we'll be on the Hill tomorrow wow. mobilizing against it. And we're generating phone calls to senators. Uh, you know, I mean, the truth is, uh, you know, this is a pivotal moment for the climate justice movement. And the pivotal moment is this. We cannot afford to keep uh, building fossil fuel 
extracting infrastructure if we're going to meet any of the goals uh, to save our planet and our climate. And it is in some ways hypocritical for the administration to go out and say we are we are the most pro-climate administration in history and look, passing uh, the measures they did in the Inflation Reduction Act uh, are positive steps forward, but they can't cancel it out by cutting this side deal with Manchin right. and saying, you know right. what, we're going to keep the fossil fuels flowing. That won't work. Uh, and, you know, that's why we're going all out to stop it. And, you know, we do have to call out the administration and Democrats who uh, are on the wrong side, just like they're on the wrong side of labor, they're on the wrong side of this fight. So, uh, Joseph, um, first of all, I thought I was having a decent hair day today, but you just put me to shame, man. I got to, <laughs> after after the show, you, you got to send me some tips. I mean, it's, it's perfect pompadour, sir. I'm, I'm, I'm a little envious, not gonna lie. But- um, uh, well, Thank you, Ron. You're welcome. Uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about just the anatomy of our revolution, the organization. You know, I mean, to my understanding and, and what interaction that I've had, um, you know, the organization seems very heavily focused in the electoral realm. And now, you know, a lot of people have had some frustrations just towards that process, myself being one of them, understandably so for all of us. Uh, and, and now, you know, I, I seem to be hearing more about like an inside outside strategy. So so is the organization kind of expanding a bit and, and focusing more outside of electoral politics? And, and if so, like what exactly does that look like from from an organizing standpoint? So I would when you ask what our revolution is about, I would argue that we are fundamentally about the politics of power. Okay. And we're trying to figure out how do we build an enduring a uh, progressive uh, power base in the United States. That being said, I think part of it is uh, being able to uh, wield power in the electoral arena. But in the same way, I think it's important to uh, wield power in uh, particular issue fights. Um, it, is, in, uh, it is really important to play uh, within the Democratic Party to call them out. We're in a two-party system. We've got to call Democrats out uh, and try to take over the party because the truth is they should represent us, not the corporate interest. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, again, what our revolution is about is about building power. And it starts at the grassroots uh, and it starts with organizing. And what moves people, uh, at least the folks that we're engaging is, you know, what is it that we can do to improve the standard of living for ourselves, our families, our communities? Yeah. And then when you ask that question and you ask people, what do you care about? You know, they say, well, I'm worried about keeping a roof over my head. I'm worried about making sure my kids can go to college. I'm worried about the future of the planet. I'm worried about making a living wage. If you follow the answers to those questions, uh, some of that, some of the uh, answers lie in the electoral realm. It does lie in making sure we elect people who are uh, 
not afraid to stand up to corporate interests and say, yes, we should have unions for all. We should have living wages for all. Um, but it also means uh, calling the question on the rich and powerful by organizing around issues that we care about. Even though, for example, Medicare for all is incredibly popular, we don't have popular yeah. support within the democratic uh, power structure. Uh, and then it's incumbent on us to do what it takes to make that a reality, which is, you know, uh, trying to put more progressives in the Democratic Party, trying to take out Democrats who don't support it, uh, you know. And so, but that all being said, our goal, I think, is to be powerful so that we can advance uh, the issues that matter to us, right? Uh, and I would argue, you know, in some cases, there's no permanent allies, there's no permanent, yeah. uh, permanent enemies, there's only permanent interests. And our interests are the economic interests, the material interests of the 99%. Um, and we have to do whatever we can do, whatever it takes to win, right? Uh, and that's the way we think about our work. Uh, it's rooted in a vision uh, of the world as it should be, but we're organizing in the world as it is, and that's power politics. And whichever side either has more money or more people will win. And the struggle for groups like our revolution is we're not organizing big donors, right? We're organizing small donors. We're organizing local folks and local communities to go out. Um, and we're outmatched a lot of times, yeah. uh, especially when it comes to, to big money. Let me ask you this, Joseph. There's a whole group of, of voters <clears throat> that five years ago would have agreed with you and they were Bernie Sanders supporters, they're, but they're highly disappointed with the outcomes, with DNC shenanigans, with yeah. electing members to Congress, like you know maybe AOC, who they feel that has not fulfilled her obligation as being a progressive, maybe ignored some stuff that she said she was gonna do. So they feel like they've lived through cycles of disappointment and they no longer see the Democratic Party as a viable uh, means of getting electoral power. What is your response to somebody that says that to you? You know, what I would say is, yeah, look, disappointments are real um, and they are part of the territory when it comes to organizing and creating so lasting social change. Um, you know, look, we've uh, it is rare that uh, one election, one candidate transforms history. It has never happened. And even when you think about the civil rights movement, uh, when you think about other transformational movements in our country, there were decades of organizing and base building and uh, you know, putting allies into power that resulted in change. And so what I would say is this, is like, we can't give up and can't lose hope. We have as a movement for the first time in decades, created a progressive voting block in Congress where, uh, you know, with the Congressional Progressive Caucus, where there is a block of votes that if we can get them to act in discipline, we have real power, right? We actually get to be- And discipline's the key. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah, well, I, I, think of, I think a lot of people yeah. are a little frustrated because they're not acting and discipline so so how do we how do we change that trend because it, it's been going on for a while now that they just have not acted as a block and if they could even though they're still grossly outnumbered 
Yeah. If they acted as power, a block, yeah. that's the first step in using the leverage you got. And it just hasn't been happening. And that's been frustrating. Well, and that's where I think that's where we're learning as move. I mean, the CPC did not get to this, uh, did not get to a point of having, uh, I would say, enough votes. And that's what it comes down to in the House, right? I mean, decision makers, leaders in the House and Senate, leaders in the White House, they'll pay attention to you if you say, I re represent a chunk of votes. And you know what? If you go against us, we're going to fuck you. Uh, and boom. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. They, and, how, why don't they realize that? Well, they have and, that power. Yeah. So the challenge is, you know, for us as progressives to make sure that the people that we put in power hold the line. That's okay. on us, I think. Um, and then, you know, the other part is, uh, if they don't, we got to take them out and replace them with people who do. Right. Uh, but that in order to do that, it does require staying within our current electoral frame. I mean, uh, if we could blow up the system and create a, you know, a parliamentary system, a different system, I'd be with yeah. you. Should we have a worker yeah. labor party? Yeah, we should. But the current framework that we're operating in uh and uh is one that i think gives us uh leverage if we organize and that's the thing even in another universe say in a universe that was multi-party if we didn't organize we wouldn't have leverage right we'd have to organize the uh the uh, rules of the right. game might be a little bit different we may not right. need as many votes to be a coalition partner uh but at the end of the day, it comes down to organizing. And I don't think the Democratic Party or the progressive movement has organized enough, right? Uh, and we in the Democratic Party as progressives have not done enough to move the needle because, yeah, we're still complaining and losing. And so it makes me think, man, we got to get up and push these folks even further. You know, I was in a legislative meeting the other day. Uh, it was a public meeting with elected leaders in one of our states with some of our members talking about the legislative agenda coming up. And these were progressive electeds, uh, people that we helped endorsed, uh, endorse and put in power. And we were talking about the issues. And one of the issues that came up was, oh, we need to fight for the tip minimum wage, right? We can't allow, uh, you know, one set of workers to make less. And some of yeah. the progressive electeds said, you know what, we're with you, but, no se puede. Well, that's shocking to me. Why can't they? I don't understand. Well, and so that's I the mean, thing. Because what I'm like, eh, wrong answer. Right. No, <laughs> and I think, yeah, it is the wrong answer. Uh, is it challenging? Yes. But we won't take no for an answer. And that's where we've got to do the organizing to even make our allies feel like they can go out and legitimately win on an issue. Is it easy? No. But what they're saying is, well, we need, uh, you know, masses of people to yeah. come to the state house and say this is important. Well, OK, we'll do that. But you know what? We need you not to say it's not possible right. because your responsibility is to represent us and to stand up. Right. So we'll do our part, but you've got to be able to go against the power structure yourself. You know, so it's that kind of relationship that we're engaged in. Right. Uh, and it's a negotiation. And even with our allies, right, forcing them to be on the right side of stuff. Um, but 
that being said, yeah. organizing is hard. It's long term, you know, uh, and that being said, I think, you know, the trajectory is we have, you know, the fact that we have a vibrant progressive movement in this country uh, after so many years of right wing rule. And, you know, and of course, we still have a lot to contend with. But, you know, it is amazing to me that we have people like Bernie Sanders and we have. Yeah masses of people who uh, voted uh, and are interested in left politics in this country, which makes me hopeful that as we mature, we'll get more strategic, we'll get more numbers, right? And we'll able to win, uh, yeah. you know, but that's what it comes down to is organizing and strategy. Well, let me ask you. Think, oh, yeah. go ahead. Sorry, Ron. Let me ask you as a, as a strategy question, because, you know, I mean, we could have a, a very long conversation about, you know, third party or dem entering, blah, blah, blah. We could have that conversation for a very long time. But the one <laughs> thing that I have found both strategies have in common is some rules need to change. I mean, you know, like yeah. I, I totally understand <laughs> we're operating in a certain system and I get that, too. However, there are some rules that we could really fight to change, like getting money out of politics, ranked choice voting, right. things like that, that I think kind of bleed into electoralism still and also get overlooked because I think those yeah. rule changes are necessary to really have a chance to have a progressive movement, be it successful within or outside the Democratic Party. No, I think that's right. And I think that comes down to yeah. organizing, right? I mean, it is like, can we build a movement that's powerful enough to fight on those types of issues, rewrite the rules so that big money doesn't dominate our political economy? But the problem is, I mean, but it's on us. We're not organized enough yet to be a credible challenge. Uh, to the way the rules are written or even to some Democrats who, yes, yeah. you know, basically, you know, yes, the progressive movement, right? They want our votes at election time and then they screw us over when it matters. That's right. not acceptable. But I put the, you know, I, it doesn't make me say fuck politics. I'm going to walk away from the public arena. It makes me think I got to be better as an organizer. You know, sure. I got to go talk to more people. Yeah. I got to get smarter about the way I play. You know, that's what Martin Luther King, right? I mean, that's what, you know, people like A. Philip Randolph did, right? They over decades organized, right? And they won some fights, they lost some fights, uh, but it's uh, it was a constant effort of, you know, mobilizing people day in, day out around a strategy. And honestly, whatever system we live in, it's got to be rooted in mobilization and activism yeah. and activism that's smart. It's not just pointless protest, but it's protest that actually has some right. theory of winning uh, or advancing, you know, the, the cause for. I, I agree with you there. Um, <clears throat> you protest for the sake of protest isn't necessarily effective. Uh, let me ask you this. I think part of that strategy and the organizational structure uh, changes implementations that need to happen really have to come from the DNC itself. I know uh, Larry Cohen has been a, a large fighter for reform in the DNC, Jim Zogby has been. I've sat through so many meetings watching those guys you know, do their best to get around the establishment Democrats. But the fact of the matter is a lot of those delegates are lobbyists. Uh, you know, It comes to mind when I watched them kill the uh, climate change bill and the first person that came out on the floor to speak about it was was an oil lobbyist, uh, Maria Cardona. So th there's yeah. so many things going on inside the DNC that that are also stopping change and um, 
I, what do we do about that? Because that's its own party policy machinations. It's not necessarily something that you can change without really, really infiltrating it, which is hard to yeah. do because these are not all elected positions. They're appointed. Well, no, that's a good point. It is. I mean, people don't realize uh, in the world that we live in, our the way our democracy works, that it is a two-party system. And there's this party system that they don't really teach you about in grade school, right? right. Like, this is how, <laughs> you know, elections have, you know, they don't tell yeah. you, well, there's a party. It's a powerful party. A powerful yeah, it plays party. a yeah. gatekeeper function. Yeah. Uh, and we don't realize that uh, growing up and going through civic school and, you know, all that stuff. But that's one thing that at our revolution that's fundamental to our theory of change is like we do need to infiltrate take over, transform the party. And it's just like at Congress where, you know, it's really, it comes down to who's got the votes to win. Um, and, you know, what we've been doing is working with local grassroots activists around the country uh, to help them win seats at precinct levels, at city council and county levels and at state levels. And again, our theory of change is this, is we need to build progressive voting blocks, whether on Capitol Hill, uh, disciplined progressive voting blocks, right? Whether on Capitol Hill or within uh, Democratic Party uh, bodies or formations around the country. But that's the key part, because if we can form those blocks, we have a real chance to change the rules, move legislation. Uh, you know, I think there's, vi it's, there's a viable path. Just to give you one other example that I think is incredibly hopeful that you're not going to read a lot about uh, in the mainstream media, but is St. Louis, right? We just elected an amazing Bernie delegate uh, to become an alder person. Then oh, wow. the last round, now she is just got elected president of the St. Louis Board of Aldermen. She that's great is going to partner. Right. So she now there is a progressive governing majority. Right. So it's not just the president. The last cycle we elected the mayor. Right. So we've got the mayor, the president of the city council and a block of, you know, aldermen who are aligned to push a set of progressive policies. And what we've got to do as activists is make sure we organize to give them the support because the other side's mobilizing, right? I mean, the police unions, the, you know, the, right. the real right. estate lobby, they're doing everything they can to make sure our progressive voting block in St. Louis doesn't pass a progressive agenda. We've got to organize to push back. Um, that's on us. But, you know, the fact that we got that block in place is important. And uh, that's what I would argue we need to do, whether it's in the, you know, Maryland Democratic Party or the Massachusetts Democratic Party or the DNC. We've got to make sure we're electing enough progressives and then organizing them to have a decisive vote. And that's still a work in progress. Um, but that being said, Larry, you mentioned Larry. Larry is and uh, others like Jane Club, who's on our board. Yeah, they're Jane's great too. Yeah, they're leading an effort to form uh, yeah. a progressive voting block. Uh, but unfortunately, it doesn't happen overnight. And yes, are there rich lobbyists and con consultants that do business the DNC that are trying to screw us? Yes. Uh, and yeah. it's really just <laughs> it's 
totally if disgusting. people haven't attended any DNC meetings, yeah. uh, they do have open meetings that are open to the public. Not all of them, but a lot of yeah. them are. Most of them are, quite frankly. I encourage people to do this because I think if more people saw firsthand how this rolls out, they would maybe understand a little bit better um, what we're dealing with. But, you know, uh, hats off to Larry uh, Cohen. He's always in there fighting the fight, I have to say. And he's very calm about it, too. He, when he speaks, he's very calm. I'm like back there going, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. Like, very well, calm. that's right. But it, it's it's a long term. You know, Larry's been a member of the DNC uh, for many, yeah. you know, several decades, I think. And it's only now that they, uh, you know, this it's probably the most powerful voting block of progressives they've ever had. Uh, right. And, you know, are they winning some fights? Yes. Are they losing some fights? Yes. Uh, and it just speaks to, you know, the fact that we've got to get much more discipline. Uh, you know, I would argue the party moving the first state, the first voting state to South Carolina, that's like a big fuck you to progressives, is it not? Yeah, it, yes. It is intentional. It is by design, and it absolutely is a big fuck you to progressives. It's it's just the so these are the kinds of things I'm talking about, and they add up, right? They might seem like it's like death by a million uh, cuts, right? All of these things eventually add up to a bigger thing. They the DNC knows how to stop progressive politics. They're a well-oiled machine. They have uh, members that are very much ingrained in establishment politics in D.C., whether they're lobbyists, um, attorneys for corporations, whatnot. And they know what they're doing. They've played this game a long time. So they are um, very skilled at it. But I do think that it is changing a little bit. I would also give a shout out to Jim Zogby. I know that he's been a tough fighter in that arena as well. But I do think people should see it. I mean, it would it would help them to understand what it is we're up against because it's just not a simple, easy fight. That's right. Yeah, no, people should show up at the meetings and then get involved, right? Yeah. I mean, in their local Democratic Party structures because it really is the foundational step uh, yeah. for transforming American democracy. And look, if we had enough, you know, uh, activists taking over the Democratic Party, uh, that we would have it a would much, make a huge change. Yeah, we'd have I a mean, much easier chance getting Medicare for all. We'd have a much I, easier I, chance getting the Green New Deal. But it's at that it's a very micro level of organizing. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people don't understand. It's our job to educate them and then give them pathways to get involved and support them. Right. To show. Yeah, I mean, if there was more progressive power there, they wouldn't they would have been able to move the first one to South Carolina. Right. So that is decision. My point is, is that is decision they made. They knew it would benefit their establishment candidates. And it's what they do time and time again. And the reason they can do that is because there are not enough progressives in these power positions. So, I mean, run for your local, you know, right. if, if you're interested in being an activist, run for your local delegate system inside the inside the party if you have an interest. In well, or just try to take over, you know, your local city government. I mean, you mentioned St. Yeah, Louis. Too. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. One thing that I've learned and I think a lot of the country is learning is local is where we can win. And the real estate developers, they figured that out a long freaking time ago. Yeah. We got a lot of catching <laughs> up to do. So, I mean, yeah. does our revolution like, like, is there some organization on that level where you have local chapters and, and people are just kind yeah. of strategizing on how to take over their cities? And, and, and will that continue to grow? Yeah, no, in our, LA, in fact, what's that? I'm sorry. We have one in L.A., in fact. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, it is the local uh, hyper local uh, organizing 
that at the end of the day is what the organization is rooted in. You know, I think people think, uh, what is our revolution? Oh, that's the group that Bernie started. It grew out of his presidential campaigns. Yes, but it's actually much more. It's really about uh, building long-term progressive power. I would argue that uh, just like uh, you know, the religious right has churches, right? They have a network of, uh, right, you know, uh, faith-based organizations that they use for organizational purposes. The Democratic Party used to have unions at a local level. Uh, that's gotten wiped out with the, with the help of the Democratic Party. Uh, but in the same way, our revolution is, right, like labor, we want to be rooted in local communities, local cells of people who have shared values about the way we see the world. Yeah. And then we have some real ways to act on it because, you know, it's uh, you want you want, you know, how do you make uh, reality happen? Well, you've got to go out and act in the world, which is really probably your neighborhood, your city council, your right, yeah. your county commissioner. And th so that's where our organizing starts and then it scales up. Um, but yeah, no, our work has been really focused on ground up change. Uh, one, because you got to organize uh, at the grassroots. Second is, you know, a lot of times local level uh, bodies, legislative bodies are laboratories of experiment. It's places where you can pass innovative legislation that then are models that you can take to a state level or ultimately to a federal level. So all of that goes to saying is I think it all starts at ground zero, which is at the local level, where at the end of the day, it's the level of government that impacts our lives the most, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And every and then you can build up on that, but uh, you know, our work is not abstract. It is rooted in everyday fights about, you know, is that developer gonna get money from the city? No, we won't, but only if we stand up and organize against it, right? Right. Right, right. so I know you gotta go. I'd love to have you back on again to talk about more stuff. Um, thanks for Absolutely. joining us today um, for this conversation. We appreciate Joseph. Um, and where can people follow you on Twitter, et cetera, if they wanna stay in touch with your work? So uh, it's Our Revolution, um, and you can go to our website, ourrevolution.com. Our handle is uh, The Political Revolution. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Our Revolution. And uh, I look forward to being back on the show and being in conversation with you and your wonderful audience about how we uh, continue to move the movement forward. Right on, right on. Thanks, Joseph. Thank you. Take care. All right. Um, we, are so, we still have so many, many other things to talk about. <laughs> Um, speaking of things that are happening um, in Congress, I did want to point out that Senator Merkley has introduced a new bill that would ban hedge funds from owning residential housing. Um, Something they should have up? never been able to do in the first place. I 100% agree with you there. Not and you know, head. it's been happening for a while. They started buying up large swaths of housing stock after the 2008 meltdown. Part of the reason they were able to do that is because the federal government was uh, selling them as blocks, right? As so chunks. So you couldn't just bid on one house, you were buying a block of foreclosed houses, which made it very difficult for a small guy to come in there and buy houses, but it made it very easy for a hedge fund to do it. 
Um, plus, they had all the money, right? They had just extracted so much wealth in that bank meltdown. They had cash sitting there um, to do it. So they bought up a lot of houses. They uh, rent them. They are more likely to evict tenants for lesser reasons than a smaller landlord is. There's a host of reasons why it's problematic. So Senator Merkley um, is introducing a bill that would change some of that. Um, if we can put up that announcement, Colin, I want to read part of this. Uh, so I want to go down to following the 2008 housing crisis, large private, private equity firms and hedge funds bought substantial portfolios of foreclosed homes as an investment opportunity. The federal government enabled this growth through bulk sales of federally backed mortgages and foreclosed properties, which is what I was just sort of discussing here. Uh, this decision excluded ordinary families and mission-driven nonprofits from buying these homes and returning them to families in need of stable housing. Large-scale hedge fund investors are accelerating their harmful takeovers in recent years. Data from 2021 show the fastest year-over-year -year increase in hedge fund home purchases in 16 years. For example, in 2021, large hedge fund investors bought 42.8% of homes for sale in the Atlanta metro area and 38.8% of homes in the Phoenix area. That's outrageous. That is absolutely outrageous. Um, so Markley introduced this bill. Hopefully uh, it passes. We'll have to keep our eye on it and see where it goes. But, I'd be surprised um, if it does. I, I mean, it's yeah. such a no-brainer <laughs> that it, I mean, it, it's frightening that this even needs to be a law that is like, oh, hey, we shouldn't let a bunch of like profiteer hedge funders buy up all the housing, all of our housing you know, stock in yeah. place. And this has been going on. I mean, here at Southern California, look, Southern California is the most competitive housing market in the country, pretty much, which it'll always be that way. But part of the reason it is as extreme as it is, is because you have, you know, the, these hedge fund entities, they just gobble up stuff for cash, yeah. you know, and the, so the only stuff that's available to, to people is 1.5 million and above. I mean, it's absolutely nuts. Yeah. And you're like, who's gobbling this stuff up? Who who just bought this condo for cash? Oh, this entity, who knows where? That's just yeah, some LLC. Empty and dormant. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely yeah. And by the way, in other countries, this isn't legal. In a lot of other countries, no, you know, they legal. have vacancy they have taxes, right? So, I mean, may, maybe this is something we should also look at in this country. Like, for example, in Vancouver, they have a vacancy tax. So you can't, if you leave your hedge fund property vacant without a tenant, you get penalized, you pay a tax on that. So something like that would kind of force them to lower rents and uh, make the rent, make, make the housing available for a more affordable price. In Denmark, theory... in Denmark, you can have one house that you live in. You can have one property that you rent out. If, if that's something you're looking to get into, you can, you can have one of them. You can't have more than one, you can have freaking one. <laughs> And then if you have anything else, it's got to be like maybe a lake house or something like that. That's it. You can't own more property than that. Really? And, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's the way it should be everywhere. Why do you need, you know, why do you need more? Why do you need? I mean, I mean, like, I'm sorry, folks. Being a landlord is not a job. It's not a job. It's an investment. It's not. Oh, a it's job. an investment. It's no, 100 percent is real estate. investment. So, yeah, you know, if you want to and, and, and that's fine if you're going to invest in that. But really, it, it shouldn't be all these like commercial conglomerates that own swaths of property. It should be like, OK, you get one, you can rent it out, whatever. Um, you know, there's no reason why our laws shouldn't mirror that. It's ridiculous that it's gotten to this point where they need a law 
because so much, I mean, there's so much empty housing in this freaking country. It could house people many times over. Yeah. It's, um, it's ridiculous. You know, it, it's part and parcel of the problem is that we've also lost a lot of affordable housing and apartments uh, because we cut back on those uh, regulations after Costa Hawkins uh, here in L.A. at least and California. Other states have similar laws that they put in place. So, I mean, it's a perfect storm, really. It's unfortunate. Um, so hopefully this changes Honestly, that. Because... You know, a perfect storm is what we need. A perfect storm that just in makes... the other direction. Though, we need right? to build everything again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. No, I mean, well, it's so interesting, too, when, when you take it a step further and you look at, like, what to do about just what's homelessness and what's going on in our society. Something like Housing First has had a 100 percent success rate everywhere it's been tried around the world. But that's right. a very tall glass of water here in the United States because we have this predatory, disgusting housing market yeah, and, and, that you and, have and, to and, overcome. Yeah. We have to overcome it, but it's. I guess my thing is that it has gotten remarkably, remarkably worse after 2008. I don't think if the hedge funds had come in there and bought up these blocks of housing starting back after the meltdown, that we'd be in the place that we are now, right? That just became the new place that they were parking cash because mm -hmm. they could, you know? I mean, and you're in these individual small, uh, you know, landlords or mom and pops or just individuals that wanted to buy houses, they weren't able to participate in any of those foreclosure auctions. They were, it was impossible, right? right. Why, I don't need to buy 10 houses, I need to buy one. So why the government decided to do it that way is really problematic, but it is sort of the root of this, the start of the particular cycle we're in right now where it's just gotten worse and worse. You it's know, just previously, the level of capitalism we're in. I, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's 100% like, like it the is. cycles repeat. I mean, the whole, yeah. all of this started, like all, of, like like the ridiculous system we have, it all started because somebody just showed up and declared that a bunch of shit was theirs <laughs> and then charged people rent. I mean, right. I think the person's name was Rent Salir. That's where we get rent. <laughs> and so they started like, just Wait, being are like, you making that up or is that a joke? No, 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 that's real. Really? That's real? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, and you, you would give part of your harvest as the quote unquote rent. And, and then it like oh. slowly evolved into what we have now. And it's gotten, okay. you know, it, it's gotten more severe and less severe depending on like the cycle we were in. And right. now it's just like a completely unprotected, just free for all for yeah. the developers of the world. No, 100%. It's just crazy, though. But I mean, even during like FDR's term, you wouldn't have seen this sort of thing happen. Like, I think even conservatives at that time would be like, yeah, no, giant banks buying up 50 houses at once. That's probably not a good idea. Like, I mean, it's just wild that that's become like through these cycles, escalating cycles, that's become this is the normal thing now. I mean, it's just crazy. It just right. Well, and sense. if you go back like before that, it's like, well, we had the robber baron days and stuff like that. So so it's like, yeah, I mean, things kind of come in. But at least robber barons weren't buying up. I mean, I guess there was the company housing. There was that. That could be similar. I don't know. I just feel like it's much worse. No, now, now it's even wrong. worse. Now okay. it's even worse. I'm, I'm just saying like we go in cycles and it's like we a, a cycle cycles. kind of reaches it, its breaking point. And now we're in this cycle that is just clearly reaching it, its breaking point. So hopefully this thing passes. Um, I don't have much confidence that it will, but I don't know, either. by all means, I, I hope that I'm I'm proven wrong. No, but at least he's putting it out there and bringing it. I, in the very least, there's going to be a discussion about it now. And I think a lot of folks weren't aware to the extent of this this was going on. The letter. Uh, on my list, I have, hang on. I we shut have, my window out. We have Bernie's out. letter. 
Oh, yeah, we can look at that. That's the letter that he sent to uh, Bernie Biden. Bernie wrote a letter. He, no. Saying how much he <laughs> this show. That'd be cool. That'd be awesome. Bernie, love you. No. <laughs> no, he wrote a letter with 70 other Congress folks to Biden uh, asking him to sign an executive order giving the railway strikers uh, seven days of, of paid sick leave. So we can put that up. Yeah. Let me... Ron, or uh, Colin, do you have that? I like how Colin and I are just interchangeable to you. I know. <laughs> Who knows what name you're going to say? Wait, hang on. Let me find my... Here it is. That's okay. really small. I know. That's why I have to put it up on my screen so I can read it. I've read this before. The, the first part of the letter is a bit uh, hard to get through, um, you know, because... Dear President Biden, thank you for your hard work in negotiating a rail labor agreement. That should say... Dear President Biden, you screwed over the unions. That's what that should Yeah, say. why did you step in and break a strike? Yeah. yeah, I agree with you there. But here's the other part of that letter. You know, like, and, and yeah, that part's annoying. If it gets him to act and do something, whatever, I can put up with the bullshit. But the thing about that letter. Yeah, it does. Here's the thing. If he comes right out and says, Biden, you suck. You broke a strike. You're not pro-union. He, he's not going to read the rest of the letter. I understand that. I understand that. <laughs> So the thing in the um, in the rest of that letter, they lay out, and, and this is what I'm really upset isn't getting any headlines, although I expect nothing less. They lay out not one, not two, three. Hold on, let me make sure. I've got, three. They lay out three ways they could still give the rail workers their sick time. Yeah. There's a way you can do it via the Secretary of Transportation. Uh, there's a way you can do it via the Secretary of Labor. And there's an executive order that the president can do. So those are three ways, three freaking ways that they could still get them, which, by the way, this is not even adequate. They asked for 15 days, not seven. But there's still a way at the very least you could give them the bare minimum here and at least look a little better than completely yeah. freaking ridiculous. I do want to read part of this letter, though. Go for <clears throat> it. Um, so the American people are sick and tired of the extraordinary corporate greed that has been taking place throughout our country. At a time when corporate profits are soaring, working families across the country are struggling to keep their heads above water economically. There is no such better example of this corporate greed than what we are seeing in the rail industry. In the first three quarters of this year, the rail industry has made over $21 billion in profits while providing their CEOs with huge compensation packages. Meanwhile, in the year 2022, worker, workers in the rail industry received zero paid sick days. What this means that is that if a rail worker comes down with COVID, the flu, or some other illness and calls in sick, that worker will not receive, will not only receive no pay, but will be penalized and in some cases fired. We cannot allow that to continue. Guaranteeing seven paid sick days to rail workers would cost the industry a grand total of $321 million, less than 2% of their annual profits. 2%, that's it, guys. If the rail industry can afford to spend $25.5 billion in stock buybacks and dividends to enrich their wealthy shareholders, they can afford to treat their workers with respect and the dignity they deserve. Um this is true. So they spend a lot of money on share buybacks. And for folks that don't know what that is, they buy back open shares on the market, reduces the, the number of shares outstanding. It drives the value of the stock higher. So there's a reason they do that. It will enrich the shareholders. Um, I also want to read the next paragraph and point something out here. 
It says, as president, you and your administration have a number of tools at your disposal to make sure rail workers are guaranteed paid sick leave. For example, in 2015, President Obama signed an executive order establishing paid sick leave for federal contractors, which ultimately did not cover rail carriers, despite the fact the federal government has hundreds of contracts with freight rail carriers. Okay, I want to talk about this for a second, Ron, because this is true. What he's saying here is true. What he doesn't mention is, is because there was a lobbying effort to, per- to purposely exempt the rail workers from that agreement. Mm-hmm. And Obama agreed to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, so... I mean, we shouldn't even be at this point. If they had not done that... But, yeah, I mean, they lay out all the tools that we have to give right. them these sick days. And it, it's, it's so, like, I mean... Yeah, I, I'm glad this letter was sent, but but what I wish even more. What comes next? What comes <laughs> next? And, yeah. and this is one of those situations where it's like Bernie's got to realize the power that he does have. Bernie has a huge movement behind him. He is still the most popular politician in the country by a lot. You know, yeah, this is the time true. where he can really use the bully pulpit of public opinion to just scream from the frickin' rafters. And so, and I know when he goes on cable news, they're just like, what are your thoughts on cinema? And they give him some fluff bullshit questions. I know that. And you can, see that. Him, you can see him get less and less patient, and I don't frickin' yeah. blame the guy. I know. He's but, like, I don't want to talk about cinema. What? I don't, yeah, exactly. You can, you can just see it. He's just like, what the? Yeah. I mean, you can just see it in his face. I, I mean, hey, look, I, I have my criticisms of Bernie, but I will give the guy kudos. If I was him at this point, Every single interview I did with these cable news clowns, I would just like probably drop the mic and being like, I should have done what my brother did and moved to the frickin UK and walked <laughs> out. So I give him credit. He has more patience than I do. But um, but look, I mean, now's the time to really just be like, there are three ways. There are three ways, three ways. Mm-hmm. So let's at least get this bare minimum done at, at the very least. It's still way too yeah. little. We still had no business crushing a strike. But let's at least get this bare minimum thing. No, he didn't. But I, I mean, you know, when you read these things, and you get pissed. But then you're like, yeah, OK. But if he had actually said all of those things, Biden would not be reading the rest of the letter or even no, I'm not telling him to be rude to in the letter. Yeah, no, no, I know. I'm I know. Him, like, use your bully pulpit, you know, outside of that letter. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad they sent the letter, you know, um, so we'll see what happens next. <clears throat> exactly. Exactly. I mean, what other teeth is behind that? That was just a letter. I don't know what they could force leverage wise at this point with that particular issue. The leverage has been taken. You know, I know. I know. Majority of Democratic voters. This is according to the Hill. Majority of Democratic voters say Biden shouldn't run for reelection. That's a survey that they took. Uh, So I guess this is pretty self-explanatory. Like they took a survey. Most people said Biden shouldn't run. I agree. But here's my question. I thought this would be a fun way to end today. Uh, who do we got? <laughs> like, who do we got? I mean, I know, right? And here's the deal. I, I don't think Bernie should run a third time. I, I just don't. I, I would vote for him if he did. I would vote that. for Although, him. But he's, he's getting on in years, too. Um, there's... There's a very shallow bench of decent presidential potential candidates. I would say it's a non-existent bench. I mean, really, because it's like, look, yeah. and, and I'm not trying to. I think that if Bernie were to run, we would just see the same thing happen a third time. And, and, and I'm not trying to be like, like disparaging. Bernie was in the right place at the right time. And he showed a bunch of us we're not as alone as we thought we were. 
That is huge. I will always be grateful for that. Always, always. But he's shown us, I mean, we need somebody who's going to just go to the mat in a way that he has shown us he's just not willing to go there. He's just not. We need someone who's going to play hard. But the, the same thing happened twice, Tina. I, I mean, do you need it to happen? The yeah, first but time? no, but I don't think that those outcomes would be different with another individual. But the outcomes. But that you got to try. I mean, shut we, him. Need, we need someone okay, but, who's and, going to go to the mat so hard. I don't. I, don't, so I think he went pretty hard. I don't, I've never seen any, a presidential candidate in the past go as hard as he did, especially in 2016. I don't see that person. I agree. Day. It just wasn't hard enough. I agree no one's gone that hard, but you know, I mean. But what is hard, I'm saying there is no hard enough. What I'm saying, the things that stop that from happening are these rules that I was talking about er earlier, like within the DNC, there's, it's death by a million cuts. I don't know how you get around that stuff, but I mean, to over, you, to overcome, there has to be a margin of votes happening that is beyond this, like, what do we want to call it? The margin of DNC fuckery. You really have right? to run against your own party and you really have to mobilize people who weren't going to vote otherwise. Half the country doesn't freaking vote. You know, I, I mean, it's like that. You're right on that. This is and, part and of the problem. Bernie, he did, But he did bring in voters that traditionally weren't voting. And I think that was part of his success. But right? then he people didn't mobilize tuned out. hard enough. I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to say like the, the like his runs were. I, I don't know. They weren't. I don't but see. You have I don't I mean, see that person existing. I just don't. Maybe I'm just then 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 we have no chance at ever getting the White House. <laughs> if that's true, then we have no chance ever. Because I'm sorry, we need someone that goes to the mat a little harder. Someone who in 2020 is not going to say, I think Biden could beat Trump too. That's something Bernie did. That was a huge mistake. I was screaming at the television when I heard that. Everyone should have been. And that was wrong. You know, we need someone who's going to go to the mat in a way and say, this is what the population is demanding. We have a government that's been working against the people for too long. This is what society demands. We need it. I mean, FDR, that's what FDR did. So yeah, I have think Bernie and FDR are on the same playing field. That's all I'm saying. Well, I think one got in the White House and one didn't. I mean, yeah, but so the like, there was a, this was a different time that FDR I understand was that with different but, rules. Okay, but I mean, you can only I mean, well, then we need someone who's going to be able to overcome that. And if no one can, and maybe you're right, maybe you're right, no one can. Well, then we might as well just abandon the White House because we have no chance ever. No, we have to keep infiltrating and changing party rules. And that, and it, listen, Joseph was sort of, we sh maybe we should get it. Next time we have him, we should talk about this more in depth. But there have been successes internally there. I mean, there it's not as bad as it was in 2016. And I know maybe people don't know that because it just doesn't get discussed. But there have been like changes made internally that are to our benefit as progressives for sure. Well, they changed the rules around the superdelegates, which yeah, that was huge. So then no, that's not enough. I'm saying other stuff too, but that's I'm not, saying well, like what other stuff? I mean, I mean, they 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 still were able to screw Bernie because they just got a clown yeah. car of people to actively work against him. It wasn't a coincidence right. that it's everyone dropped on Super no, Tuesday. No, no, no. It was absolutely wasn't. Obama entirely Sabotage orchestrated him. that. Yeah, totally. 100%. Totally. He got on the horn and said, "You guys need to fall in line," and and they did. Klobuchar, fall in line, sure. Uh, you know, so it's like all the way down the list. Yes, hundred percent, that happened. So you need someone who is just going to be so freaking on fire and just have such a movement behind him that the powers that be have it to realize that. Yeah, that's what that I'm saying. You need a percentage that. above. And also, let's be honest, no matter who it is, they could always screw them over if they wanted to. So you need someone who's going to be so freaking loud that the, the powers that be are going to realize 
we can't we have to let them win this time we can't take this one I, we I just, just can't don't. they're gonna be too they're too freaking loud i i, I adore you rod i just don't never, see it then then I, I, you might as well not vote for president i mean i mean we have no chance ever then if you I think that, person that doesn't exist and maybe you're right they don't then we'll I, never I, have we'll never have a transformational presidency in either of our lifetimes then if that person not, doesn't exist. Not by somebody running alone and by that alone. There needs to be other outsizings that happen, I think. Like what? <laughs> we'll, we'll table that for uh, All right. Thursday, maybe. Because right. this is a much longer conversation. I just, I don't, you know, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I just don't see it. I just don't see it. I Am hope I, you're wrong. That... I mean, I really hope you're wrong. I mean, I, I don't think we're going to have another chance like Bernie Sanders for a while. But I hope it happens sooner than later, you know, for the sake of this country. But, yeah, I mean, you, you just need someone who's just going to go a little harder into that finish line. And I do think it's possible. I mean, there are times where it's like you're so loud that they just can't freaking deny you. We just need someone. To I think it's not about like being. <clears throat> All right. Let me just say this. I don't think it's about them being loud that they can't hear you. I think that just doesn't happen. I think these guys are wealthy enough. They're like, yeah, scream a little more. I'm going to shut the door. I think they need to be afraid in some capacity. They were afraid. To be. I mean, they were, were afraid. They? You're making it out like Bernie. I mean, Bernie pretty much got the ball to the three freaking yard line and then threw a pick. Yeah. I mean, that happened I, two times. But yeah. So, and and they were able to use their power to thwart that. And so you just need loud, someone being, who's going to run Ron, the ball. Being louder isn't zone. okay, but being louder isn't going to be enough to change to to stop that. It's not yes, enough. Yes, it a, would be because you would have had agree. swarms of people. How many people just didn't show up? I mean, part of it was the pandemic. That was a big part of it. But a lot of people just thought the writing was on the wall. Bernie had pretty much just said, "Oh, I think Biden." You're talking about 2020. Be, I'm talking about COVID. 2020. Yeah. I mean, if Bernie really would have just, you know, like kept on, I mean, I think we might have seen a different outcome. I, I honestly do believe, too, had the pandemic not happened. I think that I was a think big. There's a chance. And, and, yeah. and obviously you can't put that on Bernie or any one person. That's absurd. But I, I do think had that not been a factor, I really think Bernie might have had enough. I think there's truth to, to that. There. I, I, I'll did, agree with you on that. I yeah. just don't think he would have enough in 2024. That's not me trying to like, you know, scapegoat Bernie or I'm just being honest here. And, but the other sad thing is like, well, who on the bench do we have? We don't have any, no one. We have no <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I would vote for Bernie. So well, I would vote for him. I'm not saying I wouldn't vote for him. I'm just saying, I don't think he would win. And I, but, but who else would even else? remotely have a I chance? I, I we mean, we have I, some I recommendations. Um, Chris Small should run. I'm reading them. Chris Smalls, uh, Katie Porter. I have to say Katie Porter is growing on me. I wasn't initially excited about her, but I think um, she's proving to be a much stronger progressive than I thought and more committed to making some decent changes. Uh, what do you, do you have thoughts on her? I think she'd be a better president than Biden, but I, I can't. I mean, we also <laughs> have to be realistic. Like, who would run? Well, I mean, yeah, that's a low bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, but but who would run? I mean, it's like, I mean, all these, yeah. all those names. I mean, Chris Smalls would be a huge outsider candidate. Um, yeah, huge. And that would be huge too. Maybe too outside. I don't know. He, these are these are potential future candidates. I think that aren't ready for twenty twenty four per se, but sometime in the future, sure. Yeah, I, I mean, think, I, you know, I don't know keep. if Chris Smalls would run in twenty twenty four, but. Uh, and I know Katie Porter certainly wouldn't unless Biden's not. I mean, if Biden's not, then it's just a free for all. 
but I mean, I think a lot of people would just want to give it to Kamala. So it's like, I think you'd have a lot of people who wouldn't even try to run because of that, but you would have some people who tried to run. But honestly, I mean, I think it would probably just be a clown car of centrists. So it's like, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you there. It's like, I, I, who are we? we I mean, it'd, Pete, it'd be Pete, it'd be, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty freaking rough. I mean, I, I don't. So, yeah, it, it's a tough. That's kind of why I wanted to close on this, because it's, it's just like it's a tough paradox. I don't want to see Biden run, but who else do we freaking got? You know, and, and it's like, I, you know, <clears throat> no one. They, and it doesn't go on to say in the poll, does it? It says so. Fifty seven percent of Democrats do not want Biden to run for reelection. That sentiment was shared among 70% of all Americans surveyed with 66% of independents and 86% of Republicans saying the same. So this is a plurality. Yeah. Um, the poll also found that voters overwhelmingly do not want former President Trump, who declared his candidacy for 2024 last month, to seek another term as president. Pollsters found 61% of respondents, including 37% of Republicans, 61% of independents and 88% of Democrats don't want Trump to run for a second term. Yeah. I mean, they're both very unpopular. Well, it, it's always been, it's always an unpopularity contest. Literally. Like it's literally, it literally yeah. Because it usually the person with less votes wins. Like, I mean, How sad is the that? person with less votes sometimes wins because of that beautiful thing called the electoral college. That's just so great. It just, I mean, it's just, it's sad that this is what, but you're right. It's an unpopularity contest. I mean, we always end up with two crappy candidates, it seems. I mean, at least in my lifetime. I mean, I don't know how you think it would be different in mine. I would be, be like, no, in my lifetime. No, you're, it was way you're younger than me, so entirely in yours. <laughs> you must have missed the even... presidential election of, of 20 never that happened where we had all these great candidates. <laughs> no, yeah, uh, that didn't happen. Well, so folks, let us know. Uh, hit us up with a, with a last minute super chat here. Who do you think? Who could it be? If it's not, I mean, I would love to not see Biden run, but who do you think? And, and you know, you can be uh, idealistic and also realistic, you know, like like there's a lot of people. If I could pick anyone for the presidency, I would actually be on the same page as Zach Curtis here. Shama Zouan would be if I could just pick the president. That's who I'd pick. I'd pick Shama Zouan to be president. Thank you guys so much. You help keep this show on the air. Go to statusq.com slash join. If you are able, you know that when you join Status Coup, you're funding independent journalism. You're funding sending Status Lou on the beat. You're funding sending Tina on the beat. You're funding sending Jordan on the beat when he's not writing a book or making a person. That's what you're funding. So Status Coup slash join. And by the way, you'll be able to participate on our members call on Thursday where we're going to talk among us. Where Ron and I get even rowdier. We get really rowdy on these member calls that actually Thursday will be our first one. <laughs> but it'll be rowdy, we freaking promise you. And um, and it'll be my first one. You might have participated in them in the past. I have, yeah. Okay, so it'll be my first. It'll be my, it'll be my first one, folks. Uh, but we'll be talking, among other things, we'll be talking about potential 24 uh, contenders. I mean, I might, I might yeah. run. I haven't decided yet. I might go for it. <laughs> no. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about... That'd be the worst. That'd be the freaking worst. I, I might vote for you. I might be convinced. I wouldn't even vote for me. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't even mean that. I just mean it would be like, uh, it would just be like a terrible, I, I don't know. People who I know who have run for office, most of them say it was the worst experience of my life. That's why, I mean, I, I give mad kudos to anyone who does it because it, it's it's just crushing. I mean, it's, it's rough. It's rough. 
But uh, but yeah. Alrighty then. All right, folks. I will be back tomorrow, uh, and I'll have a fun show for you. And uh, Tina and I will and be back together on back Thursday. on Thursday. And then also this week uh, for Right Wing Insanity Report, I have Zach Roberts uh, coming on as guest. Uh, you've seen Zach Roberts' uh, photos before. He's a photojournalist. But he's been at, like, all kinds of crazy things from Charlottesville to crazy Trump rallies January 6th. So I'm going to have him on. Um, he was also working with Greg Palast on Vigilante, the uh, documentary that he just shot down in Georgia for the um, voter suppression. Brilliant. Is that your gardener? I hear that. No, not mine, but, but there's one gardener. somewhere. Someone. A very loud blow thing. I don't know what, what they, do you call I mean, those? didn't it rain today? Did it rain out near you today? Yeah, it's it still kind of. It was it's, crappy it's all about, day. I, there's a reason I have my out now. It's like 42 degrees in here. It's freezing. Yeah, no, it's it's really, uh, we should definitely. Uh, everybody on the cold. East Coast is yeah, like I know, I know. laughing at us. Like they're like 42. They're not laughing. <laughs> they're, they're yelling at us. They're just like, right they're like, oh, you're complaining about the cold in Southern California now? Okay, guys. Uh, all right. All right, y'all. Thank you all. <laughs>